Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. And those of you that have been with us in the book of Acts, you probably realize by now that, that Luke, the writer of Acts, is spending a large amount of space covering Peter's visit to the house of Cornelius. And um, some of you are probably wondering if we will ever get out of the house of Cornelius. But Lord willing, we will today. That is the plan. So in the final passage on this particular matter, we're going to hear Peter's summary of the situation of what has taken place. So allow me to read Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa, praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. Verse 11. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house, saying, Send to Joppa, and have Simon, who is called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon me, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. There are times that you're called to give an account of your actions for the decisions you made. And people who should understand do not, and you feel isolated and alone. And that is a taste of what Peter felt at this moment. But he also knew that God would not fail him, because God was in this. And if God is in your decisions, he will fight for you. Now, we're not told how much time passed between the Holy Spirit falling on the, the Gentiles in Caesarea and then Peter's visit to Jerusalem. Word probably spread very quickly. All the believers in Judea had heard about it, and Jerusalem is still the headquarters of the church and the home base of the apostles. So if you recall, back in chapter 8, when the Samaritans received the gospel and many believed, it was Peter and John who sent or who were sent by the apostles 
to Samaria to assess that particular situation. But now the, uh, the tables are turned, and it is Peter himself who is being asked to give an account to the other apostles about what has occurred. So God is, God is obviously working, and the apostles and the Jewish believers, they're acknowledging this because verse 1 states, they heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. But there was a certain group, those who were circumcised, who took issue with Peter. And this, this is an influential faction within the church that did not approve of, of Peter's actions. So uh, allow me to try to explain who this so-called circumcision group was. I believe that, that probably all of you are aware that God commanded Abraham, the first Hebrew, the father of the Jewish people, to circumcise all the males in his household. Genesis 17, if you need a reference for that. Now, circumcision, though widely practiced today for medical, for hygienic reasons, was not common in the ancient world. And not to get too graphic, but the sign of circumcision, the cutting off of the foreskin of an infant male, was the physical sign of God's covenant with his people. It showed that they belonged to him. Circumcision is, is performed on the most intimate part of the body of a male. And so in one sense, it represents the intimacy of relationship that God desires with his people. But for our purposes in Acts 11, it is enough right now to understand that every Jewish male was circumcised. And for that reason, every Jewish believer in Jesus entered the church circumcised. So when, when our text speaks of those who were circumcised, it's not talking about every member of the church in Jerusalem, because that would have been the case for all of them. It's referring to a certain group, a certain group of believers. So who is this group? Well, at this point, it was a group whose influence was really in its infancy. They were members of the church who tended to believe that a person who desired to follow Jesus in faith had to first become Jewish. That is, receive circumcision. And then after receiving circumcision, the, the, the sign of the covenant follow the whole law of Moses. That would be all 613 commands. And this movement, it would, it would eventually grow, and it would have to be confronted, but that is yet to come. And before we uh, judge the circumcision group too harshly, we must keep in mind that, that there was just at this point, chapter 11, there was no place in their thinking for Gentiles, for non-Jews to be saved. It was a foreign concept. There was no box in which to put such an ideology. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing in our own way. We might not say it aloud, but for various reasons, each of us, if we do not guard ourselves and we do not listen to the Holy Spirit, we will tend to think, you know, that that person is, is not really suited to be a Christian. They have a past or, um, or, you know, they won't fit in or they don't meet my idea of someone who should attend my church. And as I said, we, uh, we, don't necessarily speak these opinions aloud, but we do each carry preconceived notions about who God is able to save and who he is not. And we each carry prejudices against people who have, who have certain sins in their past or against people who, 
maybe we would not feel comfortable worshiping with. And in the case of the, the circumcision group, perhaps the closest comparison to you and me is our tendency to decide what people must do in order to be accepted by God. And we know, we know in our heads, we know that it's by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, that anyone is ever saved. We know that. Because if there was any extra requirement beyond faith in Jesus, that, that each of us, that each of us would still be dead in our sins. We would still each be bound for hell. And we know this because the Bible is clear that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. We know this, yet like the circumcision group, we still cling to, to personal prejudices. We're tempted to think, she needs to dress differently. You know, he needs to stop telling those, uh, those crude stories. She needs a, a major correction in her doctrine, or maybe a minor one. He needs to stop hanging around those people. And in reality, you're probably right. Things do need to change in their lives. But you know what? Jesus, Jesus is fully capable of making those changes when he is given full reign in a heart. So before we're too hard in the circumcision group, let's just each confess that we each have our own standards for others. It's probably not circumcision. That's probably not something that you're, that you're laying on somebody else you're dealing with. But it is requirements or a requirement that you've added, not God. And besides all this, chapter 11, there's still no concept of Gentiles becoming Jesus followers. This is exactly what Peter struggled with. He had to be shown a, a heavenly vision. He had to hear this divine voice three times. It was not easy for him to wrap his mind around. And it's not easy for the circumcision group to grasp either. And Peter, you know, Peter knows. He knows what he experienced. He knows that God has done something amazing that, that's going to forever alter the future of the church. And he desires to give this account to explain what has happened. And so the precise issue that this circumcision group takes up with Peter is found in verse 3. They say, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now remember, there's no law in the Old Testament forbidding Jewish people to eat with Gentiles. But there certainly was a law against eating unclean foods. And so to protect themselves against even accidentally eating something unclean, many Jewish people did not even go into the homes of Gentiles, go into places where that food might be served. And so let's look at, let's look at how Peter answers this charge. There are times when God will do something in you or through you that others will not understand. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you will. And it will probably be painful or frustrating because the very ones who you are who are calling you to give an account are some of the ones who you thought would understand. But when God moves, you do not need to defend him. God is perfectly capable of defending his own work and his own word. What you do need to do is what Peter did. Testify to what God has done. 
just as it was God in the first place who led you and moved through you to accomplish his purpose. So God will vindicate what he himself has done. And so keeping that in mind, we'll observe, uh, observe what Peter focuses upon as he gives an account of how the Lord used him. First of all, first of all, we see what God showed to him. What God showed to him. Starting in verse 5, Peter's recounted his experience. He's on the rooftop at the house of Simon, the tanner, and Joppa. And some time has passed now. Peter has the benefit of hindsight, of looking back. He's had time to process all the Lord has showed to him. And he notes in his recounting that he was praying, which establishes it for us that the vision was from the Lord. And he attempts to describe this very large object descending from the sky that looks like a sheet or a sail, like on a boat. It's being lowered by four corners, creating this pocket within in which are dwelling all kinds of animals. And Peter says, it came right down to me. Verse 5. So he's able to clearly see all the animals moving within. Different categories. And those are all mentioned in Leviticus 11. We have these, uh, these four-footed animals. Animals that would be clean, kosher. Animals that, that, that chew the cud, that eat grass. They have a split hoof, cows, sheep, goats. Then we have the wild beast, which would be animals not suitable for consumption by the Jewish people, including things like lions, bears, rabbits, mice. And then crawling creatures, that would be reptiles, lizards, snakes, frogs, a lot of insects, definitely unclean. So it's, it's, it's quite a shocking picture if you think about it. All these different kinds of animals, slithering, sliding, stomping, jumping in this big tangled mass in this, in this cavernous sheet. And it was, it was startling enough for Peter to try to process the image that's before him. But then the voice from heaven, as he's recounting, confuses the issue all the more. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And he can't. He's stuck. Because the thought of eating something unclean has never crossed his mind. It's not acceptable. Peter's a Jew. He was of the same mind in many ways of those accusing him of sinning by eating with Gentiles. But since Peter missed the point, the voice returns and says, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. So this, this whole question of, of so-called clean and unclean food aside for the moment, we know, of course by now, that the Lord was not really speaking to Peter about food. God was using an illustration to speak to Peter about people. There's absolutely no one who God is unwilling to save. There are no clean or unclean people when it comes to who God will accept. All are welcome to come. All are welcome to come if they will. But I do want to add that Jesus made clear, Mark, uh, Mark 7, chapter 15, that food does not make somebody spiritually unclean. Jesus said, there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. What defiles every man, every woman spiritually is sin. And so Jesus goes on to say that it was what comes out of a man that defiles him. Verses 21 through 22 in Mark chapter 7. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, 
sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Jesus' point, we are all spiritually unclean in the eyes of God. We are all defiled in spirit. The stench of, of rot and death rising from within our hearts if they've yet to be washed clean by the Holy Spirit. And so while everyone is spiritually unclean, at the same time, everyone is also a focus of God's love. And this is what Peter's trying to wrap his mind around. God does not discriminate. He does not show partiality. God does not consider anyone outside of his ability to deliver if they will turn to Jesus. So no one is unclean in the sense that they are not welcome to God's table if, if they will come. We must be willing. We have to be willing to go where, where unbelievers hang out, where non-Christians dwell, where non-church people are. I hope that's obvious. And we must be willing to speak the truth to them. We must care about the lost, even if it's not popular, even if it might be misunderstood, even if we will be slandered and ridiculed, as Peter was, for not meeting the expectations of men. So how can, we, how can we summarize what God reveals to us through Peter's vision here? Number one, God shows us that it is sometimes necessary to shake us up. It is sometimes necessary to shake us up. What I mean is that we get comfortable. We assume that we know what God is up to. And we close ourselves off from ways that God might be working because we think that we know his agenda. Peter, neither Peter nor the other apostles had any problem taking the gospel to the Jews. That was not the issue. But it took this major upheaval in the form of three, three identical visions in order for Peter to realize the gospel is for everybody. We take that for granted. Keep in mind, Peter did not. So rubbing shoulders around the table with Gentiles, it should not have come as a shock to Peter. I mean, he was there when Jesus said what? Some of Jesus' final words, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. All the nations. Which seems pretty clear. But it also begs the question, where might you and me have blind spots? And what areas are you saying to yourself, God is, is not working over there, or God, God is not in this? It took a major shaking up for Peter to accept what should have been clear to him all along? Let that sink in a second. God's will as revealed in, in God's word is clear. The problem does not lie with a lack of clarity on God's part. The problem is that we assume that we know what God is up to. And we think that he's going to do the same thing in the future that he did in the past. And as soon as you fall into that rut... Don't be surprised if the Lord does not shake you up. Secondly, God shows us it's sometimes necessary to demolish our traditions. You know, much of what has gone on in Peter's heart and now what the circumcision group is taking issue with is this. They are clinging to tradition. And there is generally no problem with traditions. We all have them. We like them. Assuming they are not sinful, no problem. But God will not allow traditions among his people to be made equal with his word. And he certainly will not allow traditions to possess greater authority than his word. 
God commanded the Jewish people to eat certain foods. It was a way to set them apart. It was, it was a distinction that separated them from the pagan nations around them. But God never commanded the Jews to refuse to enter a Gentile's home or refuse to associate with non-Jews. He didn't do it. In fact, God made special provision in the Old Testament so that non-Jews would be shown respect and love and care. But so afraid of, of being defiled by accidentally eating something unclean, these traditions, they rose over the centuries and, and they kept the religious Jews completely separate from the Gentiles. And by the time Jesus began his earthly ministry, these traditions were, were considered law. They were binding. There, there were more traditions than biblical commands. And Jesus systematically demolished with his teaching and actions those traditions. And that is one reason that he drew such hatred upon himself. Even Peter, who had walked with Jesus, clung to tradition. But now is the time for those, those uh, layers of man-made rules and regulations and practices to be peeled back. And it's starting with Peter taking the gospel to Cornelius and his household. But traditions die hard. Just try to change the carpet in your church. Which is why Peter is giving account of his actions. Don't worry, I'm not planning on changing the carpet, folks. Now, this is not, this is not the message where I'm going to, to lay out all the ways we cling to tradition. I'll let the Holy Spirit do that this morning in your own life. But this is, this is simply a challenge to you to evaluate why are you doing something? Why are you doing it? Is it because God's word instructs you to? Or is it because you've always done it that way? And if you've always done it that way, is that good enough? Is that why you should be doing it? So we consider what God showed to Peter. Now let's look at what God spoke to him. What God spoke to him. He's justifying, giving an account for his decision to take the gospel to Caesarea. Peter's building his case here. The Lord not only showed Peter a vision, he says that he also spoke a word of direction. No sooner had the sheep been drawn back up to heaven. For the third time did another event occur. Verse 11. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Lord did not leave Peter in prolonged confusion. God graciously brought confirmation that he was up to something. And so Peter relates what happened next. Verse 12, the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. The Holy Spirit communicated to Peter, this thing is a God thing. The Lord clearly spoke into Peter's spirit, assuring him it was God's will that Peter accompanied these men the 30 miles back to Caesarea. But at this point, of course, keep in mind, Peter still did not understand why. Confirmation, yes. Understanding, not so much. So the next thing we learn from what God spoke to Peter is this. Sometimes understanding follows obedience. Sometimes understanding follows obedience. Where the Bible speaks, obviously you're called to obey. What did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. Obedience does not earn you any points with God. But obedience does flow out of love for God. And if you're a Christian, 
If you are a Christian, it will be a supreme joy of your life to find out what God expects and to do it. Obedience in the Christian life, it's not optional. And in fact, disobedience is abnormal. But sometimes God will ask you to do something. If you walk with him long enough, he will ask you to do something that you do not understand. And sometimes your obedience will be a step of faith. In, in fact, anyone who has, who has walked with the Lord for a long time can testify to there are times when God will not give you understanding until you obey. And we don't like this. We want to know why we are doing something. The uncertainty of the outcome, it fills us with anxiety. And this was the position that Peter found himself in. He did not, at first, understand the vision. But as soon as it was over, what happened? Three men show up. So Peter tells his audience in Jerusalem, looking back, the Spirit told me, go with them. Peter did not understand yet, but he was willing to obey. So he took six brothers, left for Caesarea, and it was not until he entered the house of Cornelius four days later that he finally understood. And he said, or Cornelius said to him, verse 14, told him about the angel that had appeared to him, Cornelius. And he said, this man, Peter, he will speak words to you by which you will be saved. That was Peter's moment of understanding when Cornelius explained to him what was going on. So there are times, there are times when you will be called to simply, simply obey. And God will not explain himself. He will not show you ahead of time how things are going to turn out. And this kind of step of obedience, it's called faith. It's called trust. And you will only gain understanding when you obey what God has asked you to do. That's scary. Because it reminds you and it reminds me that we are not in control. But it also should remind us that God is in control. And that his plans are always good. And that he can be completely trusted. Plus, as in the case with Peter, the Lord is always up to something much bigger than you. He is. He wants you to be a part of what he's doing. And the way to do that is to obey, even if you don't understand. I was recently in a position where I felt strongly that the Lord had, had spoken a particular phrase into my heart. And I, I've, I've tried to train myself over the years, much like Peter, and this is spiritually healthy. It's a good habit to get into. Tried to train myself over the years to not act unless I can confirm from God's word that my action is indeed approved by God. It's a good habit to form. Christians get in all sorts of trouble by following every whim or thought and calling it the Holy Spirit without confirmation from God's word. But in my case, I felt like the Lord would show me how what he said to me lined up with his word, that he would show me. But I just did not understand at the moment. And as I, as I stepped out and obeyed, I gained, I just gained increasing insight as to how what I'd heard was in fact in line with the clear teaching of Scripture. Insight followed obedience. Now, if I had discovered along the way that what I was obeying 
did not, in fact, tally with the Bible, I would know that the voice I heard was not the Holy Spirit. But Peter's case shows us that God is not going to leave you in the dark. As Peter obeyed, with each step, he gained a little more insight into God's will. And in the end, he discovered that, that taking the gospel to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house had always been the will of God, according to the word of God. Taking the gospel to the Gentiles, that, was, that should not have been a shock. He had just ignored God's will, or maybe missed it out of ignorance. And we've all done that. Which leads to the next point. If God is asking you to do something, he will confirm it. He will confirm it as you obey. And he'll do that in three main ways. First of all, your circumstances will confirm that you're in the will of God. Your circumstances will confirm it. I could give a number of experiences or examples, really, from my own experience, especially from the mission field. But this one came to mind. In October of 2000, uh, Patrick, my coworker, we were preparing to depart for Belize in a school bus that we had converted into an RV. And at that time, I, I wrote in a letter to a friend, might have been an email, but we still wrote letters back then. This is, this is way back. This is what I wrote. We're actually leaving in a week. So we've been trying to get everything packed, inventoried, and finished up. I have a feeling that this week will fly by. You know how I told you that when we had $2,500, we would set a date and leave. Well, about two weeks ago, we received a $200 donation. Then the next day, we were given a check for $2,300, both from totally unexpected and unrelated sources. And neither one of them knew about our $2,500 goal. So we anticipated, this was before the inflation of 2021, we anticipated this $2,500 covering our fuel and our food expenses for basically a two-week drive through Mexico. And it did. And when it ran out, the Lord continued to provide for another seven years in Belize and for another nine years in Nigeria. But I share this because material provision is one way that God confirms his will. It's a circumstance. For Peter, it was, it was the men who showed up just as he finished praying. Coincidence? No. The circumstances of your life are not coincidences. They are not accidents. God uses them to confirm what he's up to or to deny, uh, to deny what you thought he was up to. Now, I'm not saying that we live by circumstances. That's not what I'm saying. But God does use them, and we should pay attention. Secondly, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will confirm that you are in the will of God. Circumstances will confirm it. Holy Spirit will confirm it. The Spirit spoke very clearly to Peter, told Peter to go with them. Better go. And the difficulty, of course, for us is that we struggle with whether what we hear is the Spirit's voice, our own thoughts, or the adversary. And each of these voices is different. And you will learn to discern them as you continue to grow spiritually. But in brief, let me say this. The Spirit of God, first of all, will never contradict the Word of God. I hope that's obvious to everybody. Your own thoughts might, and Satan certainly will. But the Spirit of God will never contradict the Word of God. The Holy Spirit's voice is gentle. 
Satan's voice is harsh. The Holy Spirit is patiently insistent. The adversary is demanding. He's always taking, never giving. If your own thoughts are filled with self-loathing and condemning words, it is not the Holy Spirit's doing. Satan is the accuser. His is the voice of condemnation. The Holy Spirit does not condemn the Christian, Romans 8.1. He convicts, he comforts, but the Holy Spirit never condemns those who are in Christ Jesus. The devil, on the other hand, speaks confusion, steals your hope. The Holy Spirit speaks clarity, life, and peace. And I hope that's helpful to some of you this morning. Thirdly, the Word of God will confirm that you're in the will of God. The Word of God will do it. I've touched on this. God's Word will always confirm whether or not you're operating in God's will. This means, for one, that you need to know the Bible. You need to know God's Word in order to know God's will. Look with me at verse 16. Verse 16. It's worth noting that Peter quotes Jesus. He explained how the Holy Spirit fell with power upon the new believers in Cornelius' house, and then he uses the words of Jesus to back this up. Verse 16, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter quoted the words of the Lord Jesus. He's confirming that what occurred is in line with God's word. Jesus said this would happen, so we should be surprised that it did happen. We should no longer question whether or not it is God's will that Gentiles also receive the Holy Spirit because God's word is the final confirmation, and that's true in your life as well. Peter is in a position of being misunderstood. By doing what he did, by going to the house of a Gentile and entertaining the idea that God might be up to something surprising, Peter risked his reputation. He put his standing as an apostle in jeopardy. He could have lost his spiritual credibility if he was wrong. And God did not really call him to do what he did. Think about that. But Peter's place was not, it was not to defend himself. Peter's job was just to relay what had happened, what God had done. God would defend Peter if Peter was in the will of God. And God will defend you when you are clear on the call of God. Whatever, whatever that might look like in your life, your job is to obey. If you listen to the voices around you, you will hesitate. If you listen to voices at times within you, you will pull back. But if you listen to the voice of God and obey the will of God, God will fight for you. Some of you need to hear that this morning. God will fight for you. So what is the conclusion of the matter for Peter and his questioners? What is, what is the clincher here? Look at verse 17. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Indeed, who was he that he could stand in God's way? He's saying we know that God accepted us because we received the Holy Spirit, so we know that God accepted them because they obviously received the same gift. 
in verse 18, when they heard this, they quieted down and they glorified God. I mean, what could they say? What could they say? Case closed. And that is your ultimate defense. If you're doing what God asks you to do, then he will confirm it. He will make it unmistakable that he is in this thing for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. And of course, the problem goes back to is that we want confirmation first. Yet, where is your faith if God has already moved? He's already moved. Where's your faith? God's waiting on you to step out in obedience. He's waiting on you to trust him before he gives you understanding. He's looking to you to do what he calls you to do. And then, and then he will move in powerful and life-changing ways in your life, but more, just in, more than just your life, in the lives of others. God's plan for you is bigger than you. He's bigger than Peter. You don't need to defend yourself. God will defend you. God will vindicate you. You might go through a season, even a long one, where you are misunderstood and you will be tempted to doubt that God really spoke. Yet he will confirm each step you take as you take them. The Lord had already gone before Peter and Peter was not in this thing alone. God was working in Cornelius' life long before he heard the gospel from the lips of Peter and God was working in Peter's life long before he was ready to take the step of faith. But Peter's willingness changed. It changed the entire trajectory of the church. The reason that you're in a church building in rural Mississippi today, hearing the word of God, the reason we are worshiping together here, is because Peter used the authority that Jesus gave him, the keys of the kingdom, to open the door of the kingdom to a Gentile. And because he did so, we are here this morning. God will go ahead of you. And God will also follow behind you. He will not leave you alone. And he will never call you to do anything that he has not already purposed to accomplish through your obedience. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 30. This is a good one to memorize. The Lord, your God, who goes before you, will himself fight on your behalf. That was the promise given to Israel as they were about to enter the promised land. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf. That's the promise. As you obey God's call, whatever that might look like. And so some of you, some of you are thinking about something the Lord has asked you to do. And that's good. Ponder that. Get clear on his will. And then do it. Do it. Some of you, someone might be at a different place. And the call of God before you is not to do the will of God in your own life, in your own walk, but whether or not you're going to place your hands in the or place your life in the hands of Jesus in the first place. And this is what the last verse, 18, of our section, what it speaks about, the repentance that leads to life. 
Repentance means to turn. It's simply a turning of the heart toward God, and it leads to life. 1 John 5.12, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. There is only spiritual deadness in this life and eternal death in the life to come without the life, Jesus. Apart from faith in Jesus, Peter had no life. He could only hear God and obey him because he had the life within him, working through him. And apart from faith in Jesus, you have no life either. You're dead to God. And so when the Holy Spirit is speaking, he's speaking from without, calling, wooing, drawing. And what he's calling for you to do is to believe that Jesus lived the life that you failed to live. And that he died the death that you should have died. And that he rose from the dead to give you his life, the repentance that leads to life. And only then, through trusting in Jesus, will you hear the Spirit from within. It's no longer a voice calling from without. It's a voice embedded within. Because within the Christian is where the life, the Lord Jesus, comes to live. So wherever you find yourself this morning, whether you've not experienced that life, I hope that you understand the will of God for you at this moment, and until that changes, is that you trust Jesus. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. But maybe you're in another place, and, and you know that God has asked you to do something. And you've been hesitating. And you're not really sure if he's going to go before you, if he's going to back you up, if he's going to vindicate you, if he's going to defend you and fight for you. Well, lay hold of the promise of Deuteronomy 1.30. And as you step out, and maybe you're misunderstood. I've been there many times. Maybe you're misunderstood by the people closest to you that should understand what you're doing. As you step out and do what God has asked you to do, fall back on his everlasting arms. Let him fight for you. Let him confirm your steps as you simply do what he's asking you to do. And then be amazed. Be amazed. Because it's not just about you. And it's not just about me. It's a whole lot bigger than, than, than us, than all of us here this morning. It's about what God is doing. And what he is doing is glorious. And we will all stand in awe and wonder of it one day. But what is he asking you to do today? Do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the challenge that Peter's testimony and account is to us this morning. I don't know what you're speaking to each of the lives here, Lord, but I do know that you desire each of us to do your will, whatever that might look like. So help us to, to be clear on that. Help us to hear the Holy Spirit. Help us to trust you. We love you, Father. We want to be a part of what you're doing. And we ask that we will be. In Jesus' name, amen.